Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome to a special bonus minisode of A Pair of Bookends as a little bookish gift from us to you. Today we are sharing the air with the wonderful author Emma Goode to discuss their heart-wrenching memoir, My Beautiful Psychosis, a book centred on mental health and Emma's personal experiences with dealing and living with it. We can't wait to deep dive into this one. Emma Goode is a writer and award-winning documentary filmmaker. Emma began her career at the BBC Natural History Unit, directing documentaries for National Geographic, Animal Planet, Discovery, ITV and Channel 5 before moving into the non-profit and charity sector. Emma is the founder of the production company Green Lane Films and is currently working on Open Dialogue, a documentary that will encourage a new approach to mental health. Her first book, My Beautiful Psychosis, Making Sense of Madness, was published by Aeon Books in 2020, and she is currently writing her second memoir, Tango Camino Romeo, which explores finding love through the art of dancing tango. We're thrilled to be joined by Emma herself. So Emma, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Thank you. I'm so actually, I'm really excited to be here. A little bit nervous, but really excited. You've got no reason to be nervous. nervous. We... Not with <laughs> us. Not with us. You're in safe hands, I promise. I wouldn't say that, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> so Emma, we always love to start the podcast by asking what are you currently reading right okay uh, on my bedside table uh, there are three books at the moment one I kind of shelved and I'm not reading um, and, and and the other two I'm reading what the first one is called of water and the spirit by Maladoma Patrice Somay it's a memoir he's a West African shaman and healer and it's his story of how you know how he came to be doing what he's doing amazing story I'm literally just on the last few chapters of that and I've started before I finish that one because I've always got more than one or two on the go Um, I've also just started a book called Untangled by uh, Lisa Damour and it's a description of like the seven stages of teenage life teenage development from girl to woman so to help you parent your teenage daughter so you can like understand what phases she's going through you know if she's not talking to you it's like that's a really good that's a good you know it's actually a good part of the process it's not you know it tells you what to worry about and what not to worry about that sounds great I feel like I need that for my four-year-old yeah Yeah, she's four going on 14. Yeah. 100%. Oh, they grow up so quickly these days, don't they? <laughs> they do. Honestly, she's so full of sass. And I don't know how to deal with her. That book yeah. reminds me of the one that we read, Lydia, that was, is it the book you wish your parents had read by Philippa Perry? Yes. Ooh, yeah. It's good. very good. Very good. And it's all about, you know, how the way we're parented, the way that that then passes on to our children and how... It's like how you how you kind of you you parent in a way that overcompensates for the faults of your parents. Right. So you try and overcorrect, and by yes. overcorrecting, you create a whole new set of problems, <laughs> as opposed to dealing with the ones that that you yeah. know you had an issue with growing up. So it's such a fascinating thing, and yeah, she writes about it really well. Good yeah. intentions, huh? Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it's part of a parent's job in a way to fuck you up a little bit. Oh, so yeah. you've got something to work with, haven't you? To like become who you're meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. My, my parents did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> no, my parents are wonderful. My, she is. No, my parents are wonderful, but they... <laughs> But no, I always joke with my mom about, you know, we've we've had many conversations about it, about like the way that um, my mom felt about her body and her body image, how she then passed that on to me when I was younger. And mm-hmm. um, we've had to have many serious conversations over the years about how, you know, the way that she was towards me was all, it was all good intentions and it was all her mm-hmm. trying to, to protect me from not feeling the way that she's always felt about herself. But it just then, <laughs> not traumatized, but it had its own impact on me. Um, and yeah, we always, we always joke about that. Good intentions have their own way of not being so great in the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now on to uh, my beautiful psychosis. It is a raw and unflinching exploration of your own experience with psychosis. And we both found it such a fascinating read. And it taught us so much, you know, we've both had our own experiences with with mental health. And this felt like, unlike anything that I've kind of read before on, on the topic. And uh, I felt it was an incredibly brave and vulnerable thing to do, actually. And something, you know, it's very vulnerable to to share those things because I think whilst we have made improvements in society of of the way that we talk about mental health and the way we approach it I think there's definitely still a long way to go in kind Mm. of diminishing the stigma is that the right word I'm looking for yeah yeah (laughs) but yeah as I said there's still a way to go and I wanted to ask kind of at what point did you realize that you wanted to turn your experiences into a book oh yeah good question it was it was actually the when I came out of hospital the first time, and, it, and this is way back in 1996 now, long time ago, I came out of hospital and because no one had asked me what I was experiencing, it had just been kind of put upon the treatment that was given, diagnosed, treated, just left to my own devices, really. And, and no one had really asked me what was going on, what had led up to it. I I just felt compelled to communicate that to somebody. So I started writing it. And it was like, I just wanted to tell people what a really awful time I'd had. You know, that was my original motivation. And the first line, I remember the first line, I used to have romantic notions of madness. And um, that's not the first line of the book now, but it's still in the book somewhere. And I think I really wanted to um, set the record straight because I I thought what I was experiencing was absolutely beautiful and fascinating and had so much in it that needed exploring. And I wanted to get that off my chest. So although at that time it was like this sort of fantasy, really, that it would be a book, you know, oh, it's going to be this amazing book in my head. I think I really, you know, I was just really driven to communicate from one human being to another, you know, what I'd been through and needing to be seen in the world, you know, and needing to actually for someone to go like, wow, you know, wow, that's amazing what you've just survived, what you've just been through, you know, instead of it feeling like this shameful thing, you know, because you mentioned stigma and yeah, we're talking a lot more about mental health in the world, but it's mostly about anxiety and depression. No one's really talking about psychosis. Yeah. You know, conversation I had with somebody recently, I literally just mentioned the word mental health. I didn't say anything about who I was or anything. And the woman kind of leapt 
towards this assumption that you know this someone could possibly be a murderer you know that's kind of how we think of it is like mm. psychosis oh you're a dangerous person so I think because it was even more taboo then I needed to be heard you know no one no one had asked me anything about it and that that's what compelled me to start writing it I didn't finish it at that point you know I literally just started to write it wrote a few pages and thought uh, I don't think I'm ready to write this this is very self-pitying and that's not what I want to say I don't want to just go oh you know look poor me and so I kind of dropped it at that point why do you think well, that you didn't want it to be self self-pitying you know why because I, I don't think it is self-pitying but why do you think that thought came into your head do you think that was a thought that was kind of given to you by society or was that just something within yourself no I think it was some kind of deeper wisdom mm-hmm. and a bigger idea of that actually this 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 isn't a book that I set out to write. I did want to describe it in, you know, such a way that someone else is going to really understand and appreciate it. And I think if 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 you're if you're wanting something from them, like, oh, poor me, come and, you know, make me feel better, then it's kind of starting off on on um I don't know how to describe it, like it's kind of bound to fail in a way, because I mm-hmm. needed to do that in myself mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. So each time I took it off the shelf, I was a little bit more ready to tell the story. And, you know, and it took years, a long, long time. You know, that was 1996 Mm. uh, with that first episode. And I didn't commit to fully writing a book that was going to be published until 2013. So Mm. there was a lot of life to live Mm. and a lot of processing of my experiences through meeting other people at conferences and stuff like that, you know, before I was emotionally ready to tell a story which would engage other people and get them on board, because the story that I started telling was very much poor me. And, and that is a bit of a turn off. I just kind of instinctively knew that, you know, I don't think it was necessarily a message from society. Mm-hmm. It was my own like ambition for the for the story that I was going to tell. Yeah, and I think it definitely doesn't come across as self-pity. And I think it's a brilliant and wonderful exploration of what happens, you know, in it, and you're very honest, which I think is very difficult with a subject matter such as this. And when it's so personal to you to be so honest and vulnerable in a way, it's, you know, it's just incredible that you were able to write it in the first place because oh, that's... that's a lot to go through. And there is a wonderful kind of exploration of, I found, of like sense and how one experiences the world when you're in a slightly altered mental space. How difficult or easy was that for you to translate your feelings onto the page? It it had a bit of a scale. Some of it was very easy because it was very clear in my mind and I really enjoyed describing it. You know, I remember very beginning of the writing process, like 2013, when I decided, right, I'm writing this book and I found my in point. I remember thinking, I'm going to describe the best the best I'm going to give the best description of insomnia I possibly can so that any insomniacs out there are going to go oh my god that's exactly what it's like you know and that's very clear to me I can remember all the thoughts that go through your head and so doing that kind of thing was very easy and I really enjoyed it but then there were other times which were 
further away, even in my sensory memory, you know, and writing about them would bring them closer and make them clearer and bring them back to me. But there were some experiences that I couldn't put into words. And sometimes, sometimes I have to just say, you know, I blacked out because I suddenly have zero recall, you know, and it's like an alcoholic's blackout where they've got no memory and they know they functioned, they know they did stuff and said stuff, but they can't remember any of it, you know. So that I couldn't actually describe except to say I blacked out or something along those lines. Yeah. And when you were when you were writing the book, did you have to go back to speak to family and friends that were around you at the time? And did you, you know, did you have conversations or like interview them in a sense to to get like a full rounded think of what how they experienced you at that time you know because you say that you 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 blacked out did you ever go to them I do remember actually and not as a as a general rule I I didn't because I really because there's two descriptions there's two versions isn't there and this one is only mine so I was very Mm -hmm. mindful that this was my mouthpiece and my opportunity but I do remember, actually, there's a, a chapter in which on the Shiatsu residential that I go on, and I, I black out in that. And I did actually go back when I was writing that, and I asked a couple of the students from that residential, um, I said, what happened? You know, I remember being shouted at, but I, I can't, I can't. Or I, I'm not even sure. Now I've written it. I can't even. I'm not even sure what I can remember. You know, I'm not even <laughs> sure if what I've written is my memory or not. But I do. I did definitely ask a few of the students and said, mm-hmm. "What happened then on that residential?" Because I remember blacking out after this point in time. What happened? And they described it to me. And yeah, I didn't know it had happened. Mm-hmm. So I could. I could write that. And I think I made it clear that I don't remember this, but I'm told that this happened. You know, so. Mm-hmm. But for that particular blackout, I did. But generally, I didn't ask other people. But I, but I did. Um, I did give it to my family before it was published for them to all read, so that I could remove anything they weren't happy, you know, that was in there. But it is very much from my perspective, and that is only one truth you know I think it's this kind of slightly I don't I wonder how much the reader thinks this is an unreliable narrator and uh, what anyone else would have said about what was going on but I don't give anyone else the opportunity because it is my book so Mm -hmm. I I think that's interesting that you've said about whether the audience thinks it's an unreliable narrator because I think you know when you're going through those episodes it feels like you're almost in and out of it, this dreamlike state, you know? There is one thing that I wanted to speak about that really resonated yeah. with me in the book. And that is you talking about when you worked at the BBC and how you felt maybe as an outsider, because yeah. you talk about not being the one that's privately educated, being the northerner. And yeah. me and Lydia are both actors, you know, we speak about being northern and working class and kind of mm. what that what we're bringing to the table in our industry, but also like how we kind of feel a little bit pushed out sometimes. And I found the way that you spoke about that experience really interesting. How did you, how do you feel that you maintain such strong self-belief, not only with that experience, but through kind of advocating for yourself during your episodes? I don't think I did maintain any self-belief, actually. I don't think I had self-belief, to be honest. I felt like a fraud, 
you know, in that environment, I felt like a fraud. And that was always in the background causing anxiety. So then advocating for myself wasn't really necessary. I did, you know, I think they were very understanding. And they said, your job is here whenever you want to come back to it. Because I think my mum must have contacted them mm-hmm. to say, you know, she's not she's she's not well. So I don't know if she told them I had a breakdown. Or... So I didn't I didn't really feel I had to advocate for myself because there was this sort of understanding that, you know, I hadn't been well. And then when I came back, it was so much later, it was six months later or something like that. And the job was no longer, you know, they'd had to get a replacement. So that it was a temporary contract on a specific project. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't really, you know, I, I struggle with that. And I don't know if it's the artistic temperament is that, you know, everybody else is real and talented and I'm a fake. And I mean, over the years, I've got much, much better in believing in myself. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that process of putting my story out there really helped me with that because the day it was published I felt like my energy just went out like about 10 feet outside of my body and like I was just strong and huge and you know here I am you know it was like this 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 is who I am and I was really really happy with it because I'd managed to describe it in such a way that was in a book that was being published, you know, and that validated things for me. And, you know, I, I, still, I, do, I still do struggle with believing in myself. And, uh, and it's ridiculous because I'm, I'm incredibly talented and, 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 you know, I've made some amazing things. And I, literally, I think the only reason I managed to survive so long in um, television was because other people saw that. You know, when I was working at the BBC, I left because I effectively got headhunted by an independent company who they got their first wildlife documentary series. They'd never done wildlife before. And the presenter that they were working with, I'd worked with him at the BBC. And when they asked him, you know, to recommend a researcher, he put me at the top of his list. So, you know, I think I think people liked me and I was seen to be good at my job, although I never thought I was good enough and I'd have to like do double the amount, you know, to feel like, oh, I can stop worrying now, you know, because I've done all I can. I feel like that's quite a quite a common thing with like creatives. Yeah. This kind of imposter syndrome of kind of like I don't know how I'm in this room with these people because they're going to find out that I do not know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And usually every single person at that table's feeling exactly the yeah, same thing. <laughs> um, but I do yeah. think it it genuinely that is very common with creatives and mainly because I think that a lot of what we do isn't quantifiable so we don't there's not like a a standard where it's like well you're doing great with this you know then you're getting that feedback all the time because it's so subjective yeah I think it's it's difficult to kind of to get that validation and so sometimes like you've done you have to go out make the work yourself do it and then validate yourself Yeah, which you know is, is a very difficult thing to do, but I applaud you for being able to do that. Oh, thank you. I remember the, the process of like looking for an agent to begin with. I spent about six months and didn't find anyone and got so many rejections. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, trying to find a publisher, and the same thing happened. And as I was doing it, I realized, I mean, it got me depressed both times. I had to take a huge break before I did, I went on to the next thing. And, you know, I realized when I was doing it, you know, I'm doing this for validation. 
I want them to tell me it's good enough to be published. Mm -hmm. And I realize now I've come to the end of the line with exploring the avenues for publication that I was exploring. And this is really testing me whether I believe in it or not. And Mm -hmm. so I realized I did fully believe in it and I didn't need them to believe in it. And that is actually when I found the publisher. You know, that's when it all the doors started to open was when I when I actually believed in it and didn't need them to give me that validation. Did you self-publish in the end? No, I didn't. I was going to, but actually the 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 consultant psychiatrist who I asked to write the foreword for me, he was so taken back, so blown away. He said it was brilliant, such an amazing book. And he he couldn't put it down and he didn't want to leave it. He wanted to stay in the book when he finished it. He said, This has to be published, you know, and I'm going to help you find a publisher. You know, I I know this guy. He's a psychiatrist. You know, he's part of the Royal College of Psychiatry or, you know, and but he set up this publishing company for mental health books. So he made that introduction and that's how I got it published. I mean, I, you know, we communicated with each other. I told him what my ambition was for the book and he said, oh, I'd I'd definitely love to publish it, but it does sound like you've got really big dreams for it. So why don't you go to, you know, if you can't find a bigger publisher, you know, he's just this small independent publisher and people aren't going to necessarily see his books as much. And he said, so if you can't find a mainstream publisher, you know, uh, come back to me. And I actually completely forgot about that because off I went looking for the mainstream publisher, (laughs) which I didn't find. And I thought, oh, I better self-publish then. And in that process, I remembered, I was like, oh, I'll just contact him again. (laughs) And and, uh, I was just in time because he just sold. He was literally in the process of selling his publishing company to Eon Books. And they didn't know me from Adam. They'd never published memoir before. And so he he kind of he said he had a bit of he had a bit of sway with them. He had, you know, and so he must have convinced them somehow to take to take me on. They, he maybe he lied and said he promised. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what he did, but they agreed to take me on, even though they're normal, that what they normally publish are like texts about herbal medicine and stuff like that for people wow. studying plant medicine and, and, and nothing to do with memoir so i i stand out on their website as this only memoir that's um, incredible yeah yeah so <laughs> interesting story really the the whole publication of it yeah i i, I mean i said in the intro that you've been published by eon but it is eon isn't it is that how you say eon, yeah, eon, yeah. Eon books, and yeah. then i've just asked if it was self-published but i i wasn't i wasn't sure just because i got so invested in you telling the story about trying to find <laughs> yeah, a <right>. publisher <laughs> I just, right. i've completely forgot <laughs> um one of the things i wanted to ask you about emma was the way that the book is formatted because yeah. you, you split the book into sections which are based on the series of episodes that you experienced can you tell us more about why you chose to do it that way yeah it the idea just came to me episode one because it's a bit like it's about like a tv program or something isn't it episode one right and and i in my little fantasy i thought well that quite lends itself to television you know this is episode one and um and i do call them my episodes i you know so i I quite like that sort of double entendre with the word episode and what it allowed me to do was to provide this structure which showed 
this clear difference and development that was going on throughout the episodes. You know, episode one is clearly the first one that just feels like it comes out of nowhere. And you get to kind of dip in and out of my life as the, as the episodes return rather than it's quite hard if, 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 if you don't delineate that we're doing that we know we're doing it that way then six year gap between episode one and episode two you've got to explain in some way but I, it doesn't matter I can just go straight to episode two yeah that was why I, I think it would actually work really well if it was adapted for tv and I don't know like what your feelings would be about that but I think it would lend itself very well to that. And I think it is such a a visceral book that I could completely uh, visualize everything you were speaking about in the, in the book as though it was scenes playing out in my head. And, you know, we really feel like we're on that journey experiencing those ep- episodes with you. And I think, you know, that's, that's a real talent to be able to do that, mm-hmm. to make the reader feel like they're on that journey with you. So yeah, I'd be very interested to see it it adapted. Yeah, me too. Me too. When I write it, when I wrote it and when I write generally, I do, I do picture it like a film, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like on a screen, it's all happening on a screen. Um, And because, you know, I'm so influenced by the development of television and film industry that's changed massively over my lifetime mm-hmm. you know I, I i get inspired a lot from structure of that and although i'm not very visual like in my mind I, I find it hard to picture things that haven't happened or don't exist or you know some people are very visual i'm much more sensory as in what i f- sense feel with my you know sense of yeah. touch I'm not very visual, but I, when I write, I write like it is a scene from a film mm-hmm. of some kind. So, I mean, I would love it if it was turned into a TV series. <laughs> that would be amazing. Well, you know, you've got two <laughs> oh, yeah. actors, two actors that are willing to there do you it. Um... <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> I wanted to speak about the the book that you wrote about in your book. And I, I've not found the title of it, but it's the Groff's book is that right is that the oh, yeah there's a couple yeah so yeah. you spoke about reading that for the first time and this kind of like revelation you had about your experiences you know the way this book had made you feel and I think you initially read something on their website and then it, yeah. it triggered you to not triggered you but like motivated you to order their book and read that yeah could you tell our listeners what that was like for you like that experience and what that book is about yeah, I think there were two books. I know the one I think you're referring to is, I think it's called The Stormy Search for the Self. And it's a kind of amazing combination of authors because on the one hand, there's Stanislav Groff, who's an Eastern European um, living in America, psychologist, psychiatrist, you know, he's studying, he studied consciousness mostly through early experiments on LSD, you know, and psychoactive substances. So he's got a fascination for the nature of reality, the nature of perception, how our brains are working. And he was married to Christina Groff, who after her first birth, she experienced what would be called postpartum psychosis. But he, because of his different perception of things, and what she was experiencing between the two of them, you know, they saw it in a very different way. And they realized that this is a this this is a fundamentally, you know, they saw it as a fundamentally different thing that's happening, that a, a process of 
awakening, you know, when subconscious material is coming up to the surface, but you've kind of, you're experiencing this oneness. And so you haven't got the usual ego separate mindset to interpret what's going on. So it's very hard to confuse your experiences and just then take on board society's view of it as being mad, you know, because we have, you know, we live in a, a, a culture which is kind of you know, we burn all our witches or or anyone who had any access to anything outside of this, you know, beyond this physical realm. And church kind of took hold of spirituality and paganism and, and turned it into a con- kind of controlling religion. And we're left with science. So, we've, you know, we're in this era of science, scientific understanding, and anything outside of that is just considered mad. Although science is like catching up with it now with quantum physics and stuff like that, questioning the nature of reality. So reading this book, it basically said that it listed all, described all these experiences that I was having and saying these are often misdiagnosed, you know, as a psychiatric problem. And, uh, you know, that like the person has psychosis or worse still schizophrenia or, you know, and then medicated for life and never really helped. And that landed like this kind of just, you know, light bulb in my system of like, that is what has been going on with me. And when I saw it from that perspective, not only did it make me feel a hundred times better than there's something wrong with you, you've got a broken brain, a brain chemical imbalance, and we need to medicate you to correct that. It also gave me an opportunity to explore the material that was actually going on during the psychosis and make sense of it. It wasn't random stuff. It's not like I saw a flying pink elephant, you know. It's the things that I was experiencing made absolute sense to me and they told me a lot about myself and mostly stuff that I hadn't resolved. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's my past kind of coming up and it's the opportunity to take a break from the life that I'm living and look at what I've been through and how my coping mechanisms are perhaps not the wisest, you know, for me to be able to function best in the world. And so it's an opportunity to change how I cope with life, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, I mean, it's just fundamentally, it's changed everything. You know, I don't know what my life would look like would, without that book. I would probably be zombied out on medication thinking there was something wrong with me that I was bipolar and schizophrenic paranoid schizophrenic and uh, I can never work again you know that that's the difference or I'm a an award-winning documentary filmmaker with a book published you know it's like it's just that that book saved my life yeah I think it's all about like reclaiming the the narrative isn't it like it's it's the narrative that's been created around mental health and mental illness is is quite disempowering and i think yeah. it's really important to to reclaim that and to reframe it and to not kind of see any kind of issues with mental health as anything more than you know we we need to look at the root cause of that you know what has has and i know you were saying before that we often speak about mental health just as about anxiety and depression but my particular experience has been with quite severe anxiety and mm-hmm. what was important for me at that time wasn't to leap straight to medication it was to figure out like what was going on so i did a lot of work with trying to figure out like what had caused that and you know unpicking all of that and i think it's really important that we do that mm-hmm. and 
you know, to be honest, I medication has worked for me. So, you know, I'm not, mm. I'm not going to say that medication doesn't work because it has worked for me, mm. but I also think it's very important that we also look at the root causes of, yeah. you know, what, what causes poor mental health. You know, we need to work on our mental health just as much as we work on our physical health. You know, it's yeah, just as important. Absolutely. And we're not taught that. Yeah, good for you, Hannah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we are moving towards that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's an old idea, the idea that, oh, well, that person has mental health problems as opposed to that person's going through this in their life and so struggling with this really big thing Mm -hmm. you know I think we're seeing it much more in terms of our social and environmental factors that are causing us to struggle yeah absolutely and one of the things that you talk about in your book is about having that kind of inner circle of support from friends and family I know that's something that when I've experienced mental health issues having the right people around me and having people that I can fall back on has been I mean Hannah's one of them she knows um but has been life-saving in certain situations how important do you think that that having that kind of support system is in your experience well to me it's the difference between having to go to hospital or not having to go to hospital so and since I'd rather not go to hospital it's been uh, totally you know essential really what I didn't realize when I first organized you know a group of people to to rally around me so that I didn't have to go into hospital was how much support they would need. Like you need, if there's one person at the center of the circle, you've got this inner circle of people supporting that person. But then you need a circle around them, supporting them, you know, once removed from me. It's, it's, it's been an ongoing thing. And, I'm, and I've got, I mean, I've actually, I've got so skilled at navigating now that I hardly need any support at all. I've got so many inner resources. I'm my own expert, if you like. And, you know, the amount of support I need is things like, well, someone to do the shopping or, you know, so I don't have to go out to the supermarket where I might have a really horrible experience and things like that. So, and and then I'm I'm more likely to to pay for professional support like acupuncture to help me with insomnia or, you know, because I've got so used to I've, I've explored so many different avenues that you know my support can be from professional help and and because I've actually come you know I had five years of traveling and being on my own a lot I've had to really dig deep into my own resources so I don't have as many people around me as I did when I lived in Devon and first made that support group that I wrote about in that book but you know if people haven't got that around them then there's more and more stuff online you know I find it's even just having a whatsapp group mm-hmm. you know and and I and I in turn support other people you know so a, a mother somewhere who's worried that their daughter's going into another episode and might be hospitalized she you know they call me a few times over the course of a week or two and avoids hospital altogether and you know I can just help calm them because because the worst is actually just like the there's the fear on top of what might happen you know it's like you you make it worse by being afraid of all what might go what might where might this lead and so you know just you know I don't have to do much just to support them you know on on a Facebook on a WhatsApp call or something you know Mm -hmm. so I think you know it's also testament to you as a person that you did have such a large group of people around you you know it really speaks a lot about you and who you are as a person that Mm. that many people rallied around you 
And I think, you know, there's something really special in that. If it wasn't already obvious for our listeners, you know, we would really recommend picking up this book. We found it to be such a, a fascinating read and it's, it feels kind of wrong in a way to say that we enjoyed it, but I think what you've written, it's such an important book. So, so thank you for, for writing it. But before we, we let you go, I really want to ask what can your readers, once they've read My Beautiful Psychosis, what do they have to look forward to with your second book? Oh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's so different. My second book is called Tango Camino Romeo. And uh, I actually thought, oh, it was going to be a really fun, easy thing to write compared to My Beautiful Psychosis. But it's feeling a lot harder to write. Um, I mean, it's a very adventurous kind of the energy of I don't know if you're interested in the tarot, but the fool in the tarot pack is like this character who's got a um, he's carrying a stick with a little sort of Dick Whittington style bundle tied to the stick that he's holding on his shoulder and he's just leaping off a cliff right (laughs) so that's kind of what I do I go right I'm um you know I've come out of a marriage and I feel ready to explore the world of relationships again and I leap off a cliff to do that basically And so I throw myself out into the world of tango dancing, which I actually quit twice before. (laughs) You know, it brings up absolutely all my intimacy issues that even going is just a nightmare. And so I then I then set off on the Camino. I get this weird like call. I just I just absolutely know this. I won't spoil it, but this, you know, I get this weird experience on an airplane where I just know, oh, I've got to walk the Camino, you know. Oh, right. okay. So I set up on the Camino thinking I'm going to walk the Camino for love, you know, because I need to find love. But really, the more I try to find love, the more I find all of my issues and all the obstacles that I've put in the way to love. So I would imagine the reader isn't so much like like learning like they do with the psychosis. They've probably got their head in their head in their hands a little bit, going, <laughs> "What? Why did I don't go out with him?" Or you know, and yeah, I have to come to to some very harsh realities about myself. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, but <laughs> I do end up in Buenos Aires dancing tango in the capital city of tango where it you know where it originated you know in this crazy tango scene completely fallen in love with this Argentinian guy who's so inappropriate (laughs) (laughs) and um so yeah it's it's fun and I make it, it's, it's, it's as addic- addictive uh, as my beautiful psychosis because I just, I like to kind of just grab people by the throat and drag them along. I make them keep keep reading and think they're going somewhere, you know, following me because they they're only, they're only going to know as much as I know, if you like. And no, I won't give away the ending. <laughs> but, but it's like it sounds. You've, you've already made it sound. Them along, yeah. Oh, good. Take them along before I send them somewhere else. And I mean. um, yeah, that, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I love it. I just love it. That's just how I want to live. I just want to end up in Buenos Aires dancing tango. And Hannah knows that I probably will one day. <laughs> you would. You would absolutely just go off and do that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Good for you. I, I don't ignore my impulses, which is uh, sometimes yes. me into trouble. <laughs> it's so good, but I, I don't. I don't know what you're like, Lydia, but I just don't think things through. No, never. Like, I'm yeah, just do it. I, I should do it. I should just leave it. you two to it. That's it. <laughs> no, don't. We'd be dangerous together. It'd be me and Emma. The scrapes I get myself into. <laughs> Oh, I I empathise completely. Before we let you go, this has been a wonderful chat and thank you so much for being on board with us today. It's just been absolutely brilliant. I would just like to ask if you've got any recommendations, books, film, TV, anything that you think our listeners need to watch or read? Have you got anything that, that springs to mind? Uh, well, thank you for inviting me on to start with. I've absolutely loved it. I think your podcast is great. So they're already listening to this, so I can't recommend it. <laughs> um, but I, I'd i like, well, two two things, actually. The book that I'm reading, Of Water and the Spirit by Maladoma Patrice Somay, that is incredible if you're interested in seeing mental health from a more shamanic perspective. Like for those listeners who are interested in that subject absolutely the best book ever written this is the second time I've read it and for people who are really into podcasts I I'm really loving Gillian Burke who is the presenter of Autumn Watch Spring Watch and you know works with BBC and I know her from my BBC days she's got this fairly new podcast called If I Rule the World. So she's looking at system change. She's talking to experts in the field of all sorts of areas of geopolitics, food, climate change, law, you know, science, child development, like all facets of our world in terms of how do we create system change? You know, what are the barriers? What are the invisible barriers? And she asks every single person at the end of the of the end of that episode, if you know, if you rule the world, what would you do? So it just gives you so much hope. Like if anyone's kind of at the moment in this sort of post-pandemic heading, you know, the world is heading towards the right for you know, wars on our doorstep. And if 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 they're needing to to feel like there's there's more that could be done and I and want to hear about the people who are doing that and how the world can be changed, then I highly recommend that if I rule the world. Oh, it sounds fascinating. It sounds really good. I'm going to listen to that. That's going to be my new dog walking podcast. (laughs) Great. telling you <laughs> Emma thank you so much for coming on to a pair of bookends uh, where can our listeners find you on social media I'm almost everywhere if they check out my website emmagood.com they can um, find all the links and Fabulous. get a, a link to my book but yeah I'm, I just I don't I'm Emma Good everywhere you know LinkedIn <laughs> Facebook I have actually got a Facebook page, My Beautiful Psychosis, and Instagram, I'm Emma Good as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts. And if you'd like to give us a follow, you can do so at A Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at A Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. But Emma, thank you for joining us for this episode today. It's been wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> okay, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.